Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 101 of Manage the Wild. I'm Nick Madsen. Today, I got to sit down with a habitat biologist, and we got to discuss a whole bunch of different topics, ranging from habitat management to WMAs and sleigh rides and everything in between. So, hopefully, you enjoy and stay wild. I'm sitting here with Brad Hunt from uh, the Utah Division of Wildlife, and uh, he is a habitat biologist, and he runs hardware wildlife management area, and he is the manager for that. So thanks for sitting down with me today, Brad. <laughs> thanks <laughs> for having me, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> We've already had a pretty good conversation. I've known you. I just was calculating it on the way up. Uh, we met back in 2013. Okay. So we've been off. We've I've worked for Brad. I've worked for you. Uh-huh. That was actually the last time I worked for the division. (laughs) I don't know if that's good or bad. (laughs) But I've worked for you. We've done multiple deer check stations. We've done a bunch of different stuff together. Waterfowls check stations. (laughs) Yeah, waterfowl. I was still learning. (laughs) Duck identification was difficult for me at that time. (laughs) So I was thinking about that as we were coming up. And then um, as I was traveling up to hardware today, I had a little bit of PTSD. Oh, because of the roads? Because the roads are horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so I was an undergrad at Utah State, and I needed some volunteer opportunities. Hardware had them, so I came up here and was volunteering, I don't know, five or six times. Gotten to know everybody pretty good. Coming up here, and the roads were slick. They looked clear, but they apparently were slick. <laughs> I ended up with my truck in the river, with my nose in the river, and had to hitchhike out. And I got uh, a guy with a little Geo Metro gave me a ride out. (laughs) And then I get back up to hardware and I run into you and you're like, hey, did you see that white truck that was in the river? Looks just like yours. (laughs) Yes, that was mine. (laughs) It even had a dent in the right spot. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. so we. I even got out and looked at it. I was like, that looks like Nick's truck. (laughs) Yeah, but where is he? (laughs) That's what the cops were wondering too. (laughs) Thought I tried to ditch the whole thing. So we've we've uh, done a lot together. So I'm I'm excited to sit down and be on this side of things, where I'm not getting division pay. So <laughs> I, I'm I'm excited that uh, you're willing to sit with me. So can we talk a little bit about what a WM, WMA yeah. is? Like, what are your overall? Yeah. So you know we have in the division we have uh, WMA is short for like. Water, waterfowl management area, wildlife management area. Um, there are properties that the division has purchased that they set aside for uh, growing population numbers of wildlife, uh, improving habitat for wildlife, and providing hunting and angling opportunities for hunters and anglers. Who They're really the ones that pay for the management and operation of these properties through the purchase of their licenses and their permits and that's you know what pays the staff that is uh managing this the areas it's what pays for a lot of the um maintenance and upkeep whether it's fences or equipment or facilities or habitat programs or whatever that's where the bulk of our funding comes from is that sort of money so there's different accounts though if i understand in wildlife they're So a lot of people don't understand this. They think that their money goes in and they can use it for whatever. 
but you have certain accounts coming from state. You have certain funds coming from the feds. Yeah. And all of those depend on or give you like really what you can do within your budget. So yeah. some of your federal money can only be used for water projects right. or whatever. Right. So, yeah, there's the what we call restricted funds. And that's the money that is uh, revenue from license sales. And so that that is probably gone. This this is like ten or thirteen years old that I'm thinking back when I went through my orientation. But that's at the time that was about roughly seventy seventy five percent of the division's overall budget. Is those restricted? Funds. Was those is those restricted funds? And then there's what we call uh, PR. So that's abbreviation for Pittman Roberts. Um, and then there's DJ money, and that's uh, Dingle Johnson, and those are the names of the, I believe the. Um, Pittman and Robinson is that the firearms? That's the firearms one. So yeah, Pittman Roberts is. Um, Pittman Roberts. It's an excise tax on hunting-related equipment, ammunition, firearms, uh, art, uh, you know, bows, arrows. Um, I think there's some on ATVs and things like that. Stuff associated with hunting. And that money is collected federally, and then it's divvied among the states based on... So a habitat biologist in another state is going to have the same restrictions on that money that you were. That's my understanding, yeah. And so, uh, you know, Pittman-Roberts is used for wildlife conservation, specifically. So that's where our dedicated hunter program comes in, because the hours contributed to the agency as volunteer time towards wildlife conservation is used by... DWR to qualify for PR money. Okay. And so the more volunteer hours, the more. So even if someone's not a hunter or angler, but they want to volunteer with the division, yeah. that still benefits the division because we can use, you know, their eight or 16 or whatever hours they want to give um, to say, look, we have this bank of volunteer hours and it helps us qualify for more PR money. So the more more states get to volunteer, the more people go out and volunteer, yeah. the more beneficial it is to wildlife. Yeah. And Dingle Johnson is a similar legislation but orientated toward fishing. So oh, okay. um does the same thing. <clears throat> but it's uh so, you know, our fisheries biologists they can tap into that for um fisheries improvement or you know, uh, management. With your WMA and the Blacksmith Fork River running through, do you get to tap into that? Um, I don't get any PR money, mainly because, or uh, DJ money, because I don't do you leave stuff that, up that, to the, yeah, it's the probably the aquatic section, uh, the fisheries biologists that would tap into that more. Um, I do get some PR money, and that's because of what we do with sage grouse and elk up yeah. here. And so mostly what I do is more, wildlife related and so that's where our pr money comes in but i know there's some positions that are like some of those positions if that's what all they're doing is wildlife or fish conservation related they may be funded by oh. that money yeah and a so, whole mixture brought together yeah when i was working at the fish hatchery there was one of the biologists out in the region i was in that six months out of the year he was paid by PR or something, and then the other six months was a different program. Oh, that's cool. So, so your duties though have changed from when I worked here. Yeah, Com- like drastically. I I feel drastically, but maybe not. 
but they've changed because you used to run all the elk tours. Right. And you were in outreach. You've now been moved to the habitat section. Yep. You're no longer doing elk tours. How has this year been different? And how's the adjustment? It's been odd. Like, we had a great experience. The vendors that we hired did a great job. Um, Haviland's Old West Adventures, they did awesome. They had a good turnout. Uh, I think the day, well, the 26th, day after Christmas, they had almost 2,000 people here. Holy cow. And that's just for, like, a weekend? That was, no, one day. Oh, that's in one day? Yeah. That's a, where did they all park? I you have must no have had idea. them all lined up they were down just, the road. Yeah, down the road, everywhere. But the thing, well, the thing was, is they were running like seven or eight wagons. And so the so ride was, the, the ride still wasn't more than 45 minutes. The, they're the weight. And they could, they could still, hour. they could yeah. move them through pretty quick. So they were moving them through. But, so they were using R4. They had brought up four wagons of their own. So they had eight teams of horses through the Christmas holiday. And they were just rolling. Holy cow. 2,000 so, people in one day. Yeah. So, and the th- most we ever did was like 1750 with five wagons. So, that's a lot. When we did that weekend of, or that day of 1750, that was like, uh, I think the wait was two and a half hours. So, they shaved about an hour and a half off the wait time, which Haven't, is yeah. awesome for customer yeah. experience yeah. and customer service. <laughs> yeah. That's, no, still, it, that's it so was, many people. Though. It was weird because before we hired them, you know, I. I supervised all the drivers. I supervised the staff around the visitor center. And so this last year when we kind of, we took a hard look at hardware and said, okay, where does the WMA properly belong? Most WMAs are in the habitat section. There's a few like uh, our waterfowl ones are in wildlife because they're they're more uh, involved with the ducks and geese and other waterfowl than wildlife are we just manage it so they can come and go as they as they please as they please and so <clears throat> we we really looked at it and said you know outside the sleigh ride program outside the ed the ed center it should be in habitat is where it should be and so they moved my position and the bulk of everything that hardware is to habitat and they left the ed center and its staff in outreach and so, really, the only thing I had to do this winter was just be a liaison between um, the vendor and their use of the facilities, like in the barnyard. Um, the facilities, like the buildings and the physical plant things, those are part of the, the property, so they stay under me. And so, like, I still deal with the Ed Center, but it's more like, hey, the heater's not working. Yeah. Um, wh- why don't we have water? If they want to redecorate, they don't. They got a different uh, supervisory line now. They, they don't have through. to. I don't have to worry about it. So, after I'm used to being here like all the time. <laughs> yeah, and so like that's the way it was when I was here. Yeah, yeah you were just had to be up here every day. Like you guys would show or, up, and I was supposed to be off, and I was yeah still here. Yeah, I think that's what they expect in just wildlife. Yeah, in general. Yeah, you know, you're, and you're at your forty plus plus another twenty, you'll uh-huh. be fine. Yep. Yeah. And so, and, and two, it's like, there is a, I will say this, there's a mentality within the division of, we just do what, I, a lot of us think of the job in terms of the job, not the clock. Yeah. Even though we're state yeah. employees. It's more, it's more like being on a farm. That's you, what I felt like. Yeah. If you have a field position, yeah. y- you don't, 
you're not tied to a 40-hour work week or a 9 to 5. It's there's there's flexibility, so I mean, you might work 15 hours one day and then the next day you're knock off early and go watch your kids softball game or something. Yeah. But which is great because you can do some of that stuff. There's a lot of flexibility. But certain you know, times. But then when times. we got into hay up here. Oh yeah. You're talking like 115 hours in a pay period. Yeah. You're not getting Yeah. For <laughs> for three weeks. Yeah. You know? And then it's like, okay, everybody go on vacation. Yeah. So there there is that. There's the give and the and the take. And so I was used to being here all the time. And so I would come up, you know, we had the public here and I was in charge of everything. And so I would just be here in case they needed something. And I was talking to my new supervisor at the close of the winter this year. And I said, you know, do I need to be here on Saturdays outside of feeding the elk and plowing snow? I don't even supervise that contract. Yeah, that's, that's you know, somebody else. Somebody else does that. And he's like, that's a very good question. So that's something we're going to, like, we're all kind of learning, oh, well, you used to do this. I don't know if you need to be as involved as you were before because (laughs) it's changed. Or before COVID. Yeah. Yeah. But your duties, though, haven't been as less stressful this year because we're just getting (laughs) unprecedented amount of snow. We're still feeding. Yeah. So what is your typical, like, how much do you typically plan to feed elk? We feed at a rate of 10 pounds per head. And how many, how many do you roughly estimate? Average is somewhere between 550 and 650 head of animals. You know, obviously at the beginning of the year, you might start feeding in December and there's 400. Or I've even had none. Yeah. <laughs> we, we've had, we had some days where we opened our opening day for Elk Festival or oh, whatever. I remember. We did some of the first of December, like 10 years ago. Yeah. And, and we're like out on the snow. meadow and we're like, see those dots up on the mountain over there? Those are elk. And this one lady on the wagon was like, wow, I never thought I'd see that close to an elk. You should come back when they're here. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> she was like ecstatic. I can zoom in. I can see it. That's amazing. Those are the customers you love. Yeah. <laughs> when uh, when you're in your growing season, you're planning, you just estimate we need roughly, we're going to have a roughly 550, 600 head. So we got to grow this much hay. Yeah. Or so, you know, I, I look for, we'd like to be north of 200 tons. Um, in the barn bailed. Yeah. We farm 110 to 120 uh, tons of uh, meadow or 120 acres of um, montane meadow. Um, some of it, it depends. It fluctuates on how wet uh, the the one meadow down here off the highway um, gets really wet the closer to the river you get. And so sometimes you, you get down there at the tractor, you're going to get stuck. You just can't. Yeah, it just can't do get it. Close so it, it does fluctuate a little bit. But, you know, since I've been here, we've gone from growing hay on. Uh, producing 1.1 tons per acre to 2.2 tons per acre. We've doubled our our tonnage per acre since I've been here. And so that's been a big help. You yeah. Know? So if we're at 120 acres and we're 240, you know, uh, and then where we use an old uh, flood irrigation system, if we um, are able to uh, have a, a staff that understands um flood irrigation and 
and where you know dams go to make the water go where we want it to go then we can have really good years so a couple years i think the year before you were here and i had a guy tyson yeah he was really good he He, was a wizard man Yeah, he loved it and i mean we did a back-to-back 270 tons Mm -hmm. of hay and according to old records they used to do close to 400 so I think the capabilities there. It's just how much moisture are you getting? How much spring? moisture are we getting? And we we've got old ditches. They leak. They don't. You know they're deep cut, so it's hard to get water out of them in some places. So we're looking at putting in a pressurized irrigation that will give us better control and reduce our variability of the amount of water we got. Right now we divert from the creek and our water rights or junior rights to the valley irrigation companies so yeah so the the year i worked up here we ran out or was it last year last year last year you ran out last year we didn't even turn on yeah because you we just didn't have enough water and so your production probably was yeah um so let's see two years ago I think we started watering. We watered a whole, like, four days. And then we had to <laughs> turn it off. Yeah, that is not what happened when I was here. <laughs> we flood irrigated every day. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we watched the gauge station at the mouth of the canyon. And if we're below 150 CFS, we just can't take water. And so last year, I think the high at peak runoff, it was 102. Ooh. And I was looking at it last week. It was 74 last week. The last year, at the same date, it was um, 62 <laughs> in March. And the the 103-year average was like 112. So, and if you look at the high, it was like 200-something. Wow, that's... Yeah, and, and, and the USGS data on that... Um, Gauging station, I think it's like nineteen. It's like nineteen forty-two or something like that, or even no, it's it's longer than that. It's early nineteen hundreds. You know, it's like a hundred and fifteen years or something like that. So they've got a lot of a lot of data there. I'm curious how this year is going to turn out. Yeah, me too. With, with the amount of snow, so you normally <laughs> grow around two hundred, but. How much have you had to buy? Because you ran out early. <laughs> yeah. So two years ago, maybe, we maybe you didn't run out early. You probably oh. ran out, but you. Yeah. But uh, your supervisor or the regional manager has decided to continue feeding. Yeah. So two years ago, we only raised fifty tons. So we bought two hundred tons of hay. This year, uh, well, we had some leftover from the year before, and yeah. so I think it, we bought a hundred and thirty. Anyway, so this year going into the winter, we raised 100 tons. We had a wetter uh, spring last year. May was a really good month. It wasn't too cold, and it rained a fair amount. And even into June and July, we got some some rain rain last year. Um, So we put up 100 tons last year. We had 30 tons left over from the year before. So I went into winter with 130 tons. And we... So we knew that going in. I said, look, we're going to need some hay. So we bought another 100 tons in December. And we, maybe it was the first part of December, end of November. Anyway, somewhere in there. It's we, all run together. Yeah, it's all the fun. snowstorms. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. So we started feeding. Plus, not only do we have to feed the elk, but we've got 
seven division owned draft horses that have to eat. Yeah. And those buggers eat their I don't weight think, yeah. a month. I was going to say, I don't think they're eating 10 pounds a day. You know, they're, I have seven of them. They each weigh anywhere from 1,800 to 2,000 pounds. So that's seven tons a month just in horses, just for maintenance, you know. And then, you know, you figure we're feeding three to five tons of hay a day to the elk on the meadow. So, yeah. And that's a lot of hay. That's a lot of hay. Um, Now, like I said, that 10 pounds, that is a – that's the the baseline and then we kind of adjust to touch from there so if it's picked if, clean and dry when you go out there and yeah like you're gonna and, and so if, and if we do the math and it like right now it comes out to four and a half bales well i don't want to feed half a bale it's a pain to deal with the other half so we'll feed five and then the next day we may feed four and so we're just kind of back and forth back and forth because five is a little too much and there'll probably be some left over so they can eat on that the next day, plus we're going to put out four. And so it averages out to four and a half. But as the weather has been warming, they're eating less because they're not staying warm. So we're actually only been feeding three, three to four bales instead of four to five because they're not eating it and we don't want to waste it. Yeah. So, But, yeah, we've bought this year, we just brought in another 160 tons. And so... And that was, this is like, okay, this is the last time we're buying hay. Make sure you get enough to last till we don't need it anymore. And I said, when do you guys think that will be? And so we decided mid-April at the latest. And so that's, I said, okay, I got 700 elk and 10 pounds a day. And okay, This is what I'm going to need. Six weeks, we're going to need 160 tons. And then they're feeding elk at Echo. So we bought. 200 tons total and 40 tons went there and 160 came here. So over the course of the winter, I have bought 360 <laughs> tons of hay. That is so much. Oh. We have, it's wild. I mean, and so this is what, I know some people gripe because we spend, or they, they auction off those high dollar tags at the expo. Yep. And they're conservation permits, right? That money is paying for all the deer feed. That money is paying for this hay. That that's so it's of, not tax dollars. It's the one conservation where, permit money. Yeah. It's paying for that. All the auction off tags, mm-hmm. the high dollar ones that you everybody yep. hears about. So we somebody dropped one hundred and fifty thousand for or, this deer tag, yeah, or, or three hundred thousand for this yeah. elk tag, or whatever. That's the pool of money we're pulling from. Well, that's good. To, that's cool. So I mean, poor uh, Sam, who's the district biologist up here. Yeah. They're calling him the million dollar biologist because. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's spending money like it's yeah. going out of style but we're doing it to try and stave off some starvation yeah can you talk about why uh normally you're somewhere around the first of february right and now you're extending it to april can you talk a little bit about why you want to extend or why that decision not necessarily you but why that decision to extend gotcha so you know when I started here, we used to feed to the mid middle of April. Oh, you did. Or middle of March with the elk. What, 10, 15 years ago? Uh, yeah, 10 years ago when yeah. I started here. <laughs> that was a long time. <laughs> anyway, so, um, but we had a conversation a couple, three years ago. One of our biggest concerns is disease. When you put, just like us, you know, you send your kids to nursery or school, yes. and then on Wednesday they've got snotty noses and red eyeballs because 
they got something from their friend, you know. They and, all like to share. Yeah, they all lick doorknobs and everything else. <laughs> <laughs> so when you stick, you know, animals in a feed row, they're touching noses and they're eating the same food, sneezing on each other. You can do the same, same thing. So if we get a, a sick animal that has a communicable disease that's easily spread and you're in a feed row, it's a higher prevalency of passing it to other animals and and they've shown that that like up in the yellowstone area where they have brucellosis um if animals on the feed row the prevalence is like 35 percent whereas in a natural uh winter dispersal scenario it's like i want to say 12 11 holy cow so they really bring it in yeah they just spread it and brucellosis is highly communicable it persists long it's hard to identify. It is hard to identify. It persists really well in, well, the winter, it's cool. It's cold. If it's shaded so it's not in the sun and it's cold, it'll persist long enough to get picked up. And what it does is it causes the females to lose their calves. So they abort their calves. Elk are their, uh, gregarious animals, which where they, they congregate and they, they're interactive. They're very social. Very social. And they, um, they're they going to, oh, what's this? I'm going to check it out. They're going to lick it. They're going to sniff it. They're going to touch it. <laughs> like little kids. Licking doorknobs, i tell you what. And they're going to end up contracting the disease. And then it's easy to pass on to another animal. So then what happens is a, a cow elk that um, gets brucellosis, if her calf is not uh, miscarried um, and it's born live, they tend to be underweight they they fail to thrive and they die and so you start to see detriment on your population numbers because of of the disease and so you know we have uh, vaccines for for cattle we have vaccines for for bison they work well for those species neither one works very well for elk and one of them i cannot remember which one gives it to elk like 40% of the time or something is it bison or i think it's cattle? the bison one bison Right. The other one's just completely non-effective. So until they figure out why yeah. they can't make one that works, yeah. you know, and it's only really a matter of time until, so back in the 90s and stuff, it used to be bison that were the culprits taking brucellosis out of the park and oh, infecting. Yeah, they were hated. Range, kept, now it's the elk. Now it's, it's the elk, yeah. It's sw- sw- uh, swapped. And so... um. They estimate the report that came out of the the kind of reassessed an earlier report. They estimated they expected it to be in Utah just through natural dispersion in twenty years. Like it's so it's not a question of if we get it; it's when, when we get it. Yeah, and, and with these diseases, there's nothing you can do to right. stop them. And so we decided, okay, let's. What can we do to mitigate our risk? Um, that's why when you come up here, you see lots of elk with collars on them. We started collaring our cows. We wanted to see where they go. We've had a general idea where they're at during harvest time because, um, of our ear tagging. And then people will call in. They want to know about the animal they killed. And, why does it have a blue tag? Yeah. Why well, has it got a blue tag or what's the silver tag with the, this number mean? And we can collect some harvest data. Okay. You know, where were you? And, and, but we don't know where they spend their spring and summer and and 
<clears throat> not all of them winter here. You, they may have been tagged here, but then they winter somewhere else for a couple of years. Do you have back. a cow get uh, tagged or something in Durango, Colorado? Um, I've looked at the data. I've never s- seen one that far away. We've had some bulls that were harvested up around Montpelier. We've had uh, Cody. We had a spike. He was tagged here as a calf, and then the next year was killed in Chalk Creek. Oh, wow. Clear down by Camus. We had a cow that had a collar that went up to, like, Idaho Falls. That's that's quite a ways yeah. to be able and to travel that far. Like, Dang. <laughs> you know, did you make some new friends? Like <laughs> she, she definitely didn't like uh-huh. her family. <laughs> so they do, they do move around. And so cooperatively with that collar study, we've got um, – we worked with Idaho Fishing Game and Wyoming Fishing Game to put collar elk the neighbor near us and see what is our overlap. Well, there's significant overlap there's quite between northern Utah elk and their elk. And guess what? Their elk have brucellosis. Yeah. So there is risk of... Wyoming's, Wyoming, Idaho, mm-hmm. like everybody around us. Yeah. Now, it's not heavily prevalent here. As and, far as we know, and we you're don't. are still have doing it. studies yeah, here on we, the ranch. We test for it annually, and we've never had a positive. So, but it's just crazy. But it's just a matter of time. Yeah, because Wyoming, right? Mm-hmm. We're bordered. Idaho's got. Yeah, it. and if you look at, I mean, our elk, they go from hardware and they. Yeah, they go into those areas. Yeah, they just spread out up into southeastern Idaho and southwestern Wyoming. That's, you know, they go right up to Bear Lake and they go up both sides. So and and their elk go to Bear Lake and they come down. So they they interact and intermingle, and so <clears throat> we said, okay, we know we got populations where they intermingle. Uh, it's a possibility anytime that we could have it. Um, and the critical window when they're going to start losing their calves is like that February to June. So if we can get them to quit. Um, being nose to nose on the meadow in that window, we lessen the likelihood that if one loses it, we lessen the number that could come in contact with it. So you reduce your time from mid-March, go down to mid-February. mid-February. And we pick mid-February. So statute, the law, um, says we can't hold uh, hunts for big game after January 31st. So we have hunting as a tool to keep elk out of the valley with uh, winter uh, depredation. We can use hunting pressure to keep them up this way. But once that goes away, that tool gets shelled, what incentive do they have to stay here? Well, if we keep feeding them for a couple more weeks, the ones here... Will kind of stay here, and the ones between hardware and the valley will not be pressed yeah. westward as much as hard as hard, and will be more prone to stay where they're at. And even Round Valley on the other side, yeah. going the other direction. Yeah, and then as as we move typically into mid to late February, they're starting to want to leave. Right, they may disappear for a few days, then they'll come back, and then they're just like they start. You can tell they start getting antsy. We want to get out of here. We want to get up they into the like, high country. I think they're social up into a certain period of time, but it's like me at yeah. Christmas with my family. Yeah, like I'm done. I like enough. seeing you for a day. Yeah, <laughs> I have I have a brother that um, 
he is uh you'll be there and you'll be visiting and also you're like where's carl <laughs> and he's like in his room watching he's, he's watching the gone. show he's like i'm done i'm gone you know and then like after a couple hours he'll come back and visit. <laughs> yeah come back for a day yeah. or two <laughs> or he'll like um, he'll just like now he doesn't live at home and so um all of a sudden like we're, i was down at my parents house and we were having lunch and we we're visiting and I come out and I was like, where'd Carl go? And they're like, oh, he must have gone home. <laughs> like, he just left. <laughs> Bye. Bye. I'm not going to bother you with telling you goodbye. Just, I'll see you next time. And so, but yeah, they get antsy. They come and they go. And so, typically, mid-February, we figured, okay, it's two weeks into that window. Risk is probably still low. And we watch, we get in the end of January, we start watching them like a hawk. And if we see like a dead calf or what looks like a miscarried calf, we take them to the vet lab, get them checked out. We just don't want to yeah. <clears throat> make sure we don't have anything. And then we do our annual uh, trapping and testing of uh, breeding age females. And so typically that is, you know, we'll just cut them off. And, after the trapping and all that. Stuff. Yeah, and after, and after the trapping's done, well, we've got clean uh, blood work back, and then we've hit, you know, the second weekend in in February, we'll stop feeding and they'll spread out. And like the, f if we've got 500 here, the f after about a week, 300 of them will be gone. The last hangers on, I call them my resident elk. They're the ones that show up as soon as the hunting season starts. I'll have 200 <laughs> elk in the meadow. Like <laughs> we're not going out. We're there. not leaving. <laughs> it's funny because they'll be here for two weeks and then it switches to the deer hunt and then all of a sudden the elk are gone. They're no longer being pushed. They know they're not being pushed. They don't seem to care. Oh, that's and so funny. It's so I, or, or I'll hear them at night. They'll be bugling, but you won't see them during the day. Yeah. But yeah, all of a sudden they're not in the meadow anymore. That's what that was. What for me was so crazy about the collar data is to see as soon as that archery started, how quickly they knew exactly where private or state because they can't be hunted here. Yep. They would come here or they would go to private <clears throat> and they wouldn't be targeted. They knew exactly where that was at. Yeah, and I think it's it's generational experience. It's got to be. They've learned where low pressure areas are yeah. within high pressure zones, and so you've got this uh, the big meadow here where there's no hunting access. Yes, there's hunting. There's no public access. There's there's hunting all around it, but it is a low pressure zone in a high pressure area, and they know it, and they go right there. <laughs> Because yeah. yeah. you can see all the hunters sitting in the parking yeah. lot. Watching, <laughs> watching them. <laughs> or sitting up on the boundary. Yeah. You know, just yeah. watching them. Just watch. Yeah. So that that's kind of why we feed when we do. So then coming into this winter, and, and I'm glad we're doing this because I've seen a lot of complaints on social media about how we ask people to not ch chase the wildlife to collect sheds, right? Yeah. But then they don't understand why we're out flying with a helicopter. Okay. <laughs> no, I hear that all the time. I hear, oh, I, I hear it a so lot. Mad. I see it a lot. And so this is what this is why we do our deer counts in the winter. They're congregated. They're easy to spot. Instead of us flying an area for days on end, we can do it once for an hour and a half and be done. The other thing is, is when we're doing our captures in the winter, we are targeting specific animals. 
these are our deer that have collars on them. We can pull up their GPS the the morning of the capture. We know which deers deers. We know <laughs> <laughs> we know which deer are in the area that we're going to be working. We know what the radio frequency of that collar is. The uh, helicopter can tune in to that specific animal, and they go looking for that specific. So you're only affecting a small group that's really close to that one that you're targeting instead of going across the entire mountainside with 50 people looking for that deer. Looking for that deer. They can go into the area they knew the deer was in and then key in on that specific collar and go after that specific animal. They bring that animal back to where the rest of us are. We do our work up on it. We take our measurements. We collect you know, fecal samples. We use ultrasound to measure back fat so that we can see um, uh, how prepared they are going into the winter. And that's why we target individuals so that and in February we can get the same individuals and compare pre-winter and post-winter data and that's some one of the benchmarks that our biologists use to determine do we feed don't we feed and then having the animal there we can assess their body condition if they sometimes they get injured you know they get net gunned and they fall down the mountain get scraped up the vets there they mortality in those captures though is extremely low very very low Yeah. yeah There's a, probably more of the muggers that get hurt than the deer get, <laughs> yeah. than the deer get hurt. But <clears throat> that's why we do it the way we do it. We're trying to minimize their exposure. And then where they're wild animals, they're not accustomed to handling by us the way a domesticated animal is. And so, yeah. you know, a lot of times the public will be like, oh, like we have a moose here in the canyon that's got conjunctivitis or something in the in its eye. And we've gotten several phone calls and well can you like doctor it and whatever well we could we could but the stress of that could actually be worse than just letting it naturally deal with yeah i've been on a capture where we darted it and it actually died due to trying to put it to sleep so we could move it right and they're really finicky like they are there's like this uh invisible line that you got to get close enough to to knock them out but if you go over it they're dead yeah. And every animal's different based on their personality or how amped up they are. What I think is hilarious is you can, well, it's not hilarious, but you can give, you know, an elk enough it's more to. more exasperating. Yeah. You can give an an elk enough to knock out an elephant and they're still pissed <laughs> at yeah. you. <laughs> I've seen that. And, and they won't go down. Yeah. And then you give a bear barely anything and they <laughs> drop dead on you. Yeah. And it's just and, and here it is the big bad bear that everyone's afraid of, and they're yeah, it's yeah, just, they're know, so sensitive. Yeah, to we'd have to talk. So you got to be really vet. careful. We'd have to talk to a vet, but I don't know if it's respiration, like how amped up they are. But like cougars, bears, they're different. Mm-hmm. They're hard to work with. Hard to gauge body size. Body size is a big one. Yeah, like you overestimate how big this animal is when you go to dart it and you could kill it. You underestimate, and the thing could run for days, and you just it's just challenging. Right. And and you don't... And then and some of it is the drugs because like bears and lions use different... Ketamine. And, yeah, ketamine and stuff. Whereas with you know elk, we can use BAM. Yeah. And that's a little bit more forgiving. And it's not so dramatic. They'll, they get tired and they go lay down somewhere. Yeah. 
Hopefully not in a window well or something <laughs> dumb like that, but it happens. happens. It happens. <laughs> it's happened to me. So, I mean, that, that's, you know, that's why we do those things in the winter is to minimize the stress on the body animal. temperature really rises too. Yeah, it does. A, they're running around, and then if you happen to tranquilize them, it's very hard to control. Yeah. Um, they uh, regulate their internal body temp and respirations and stuff. You know, so like like when we did the test of different drugs out here with Annette. Yeah, that was super fun. It was it was pretty cool. We got to do what five six. I think so. Animals. She trying different drug combinations to see, see if we could. Yeah, but we had that's that's the moment where I learned just how dangerous it was for those animals mm-hmm. every time we dart them like one of the funnest things i do i got to do is go in and dart moose and i always loved it but i didn't run, understand until we got with her that day because we had oxygen and monitors and you're like what the heck why are we doing mm-hmm. all this and then she starts explaining about their respiration starts decreasing and heart rate right. starts and then their temperature goes through the roof and 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 whoever was monitoring that she was always like what what are they saying what's it saying you know, you were calling it out every 30 seconds. Yeah. And if it got where she didn't like it, you reversed it. And, and we were done. We Whether were done. we got our what, data or not. Yeah. Didn't matter. The animal, the animal's health was dominant. Yeah. You know, I remember, I think it was one hunting season. You were ready to fight me. You're up. Uh, the badger. The, the badger. <laughs> that when you were working for the division, that badger that uh, one of the. It was what, 10 o'clock? It's like 10.30 or 11 o'clock at night. We're looking for my dad's slicker or something. Yeah, I got a call about a badger inside the uh, uh, vehicle. It crawled into the engine compartment. And the North Logan animal cop at the time, he's no longer there, but he's the one who darted it. <laughs> and I tried to release it <laughs> at 10.30 at night. And he. Like too much or yeah, too much. whatever, and too it, much. It, it didn't make it. But yeah, I remember that night. I thought so. I didn't know why somebody was driving up to my <laughs> truck. I here I am. I'm out in the middle. I'm in the middle of nowhere, basically. <laughs> Nobody should be moving, and here comes a truck right at me. And working with the division, you start to expect that people just don't like you. Yeah. And it's 10.30 at night. Why as a person, man? I was uncomfortable. <laughs> and then the, the door least. opens. And then this guy who's over six feet <laughs> looks like a monster comes right at me. And then I just see your smiling face. <laughs> oh, I almost had a heart attack that day. It's a good thing I wore brown pants is all I can say. <laughs> yeah, I jumped. I was like, I was with my dad and he was driving. We pull in. I'm like, oh, it's Nick. And I jump out. And the look on your face, you about ready to come out of the back of your yeah. truck with a pole. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and then I went to sheer relief. Thank goodness. <laughs> you never know. So, yeah, I mean, that's why we do all our stuff in the winter is it's easier on them. We can we target specific individuals, and and then it maximizes our our time because the, the capture crews, they're not cheap. No, they're not. Oh, what was it, twelve, thirteen hundred dollars an animal? Something like that, Maybe I think, is more. what it comes down to. You know, and so we'll do we'll do our region and then they'll go down south and then they'll go to Texas and then they go to Montana and then they come back. And They're just all over the place. Yeah. The um the other thing that's been different about this year is like Brighton has got close to seven hundred and fifty inches. Wow. They said hardware. I, I looked, and hardware gets roughly somewhere around 200 inches a year. Mm-hmm. I, I You probably had to have doubled that this year. I bet we have. 
I, I don't know if you guys have a station or if anybody has a station, but the amount of snow that you still have, and we got, what, six inches last night? Mm-hmm. We're at the end of March, and we still got another yeah. six inches, and those elk right now have surrounded your haystack, and they're trying to push it down. Because I haven't fed them today. Yeah. I was watching <laughs> I was watching the elk while I was waiting for you to drive up, and I was just like, they're going to tear the whole thing down because they're still – and it was mostly calves. Mm-hmm. You got the calves and the yearlings still pressing. Imagine if you had stopped feeding. Oh, yeah. You bought 360. Imagine if you hadn't bought that. They're going down into the valley. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Depredation would be through the roof. So last year, because we had low production on hay, we, we thought, let's try this. As soon as we're done feeding or trapping, let's just stop feeding. See what happens. See where they go. What like? What if we didn't feed here? Yeah. Right. Because I mean, in all, all honesty, if we were to wanted to reduce our risk, it would don't, be don't it feed would them. Be, it would be zero feeding. Let's not feed them. Let's have them disperse. But they're gathering around. So we haystack. we we stopped feeding after we did our trapping, after we turned everybody loose, and in three days, they were on Millville face. I came around the corner and there was 300 elk <laughs> Just right there on, and I was like, oh, <laughs> you know. So it was because some of us were like, they're going to go right to the valley. Others were like, we've been feeding up here for 80 years. You know, that's not a learned behavior anymore. Yeah, they, they I don't just know. They just know. Nature has them schooled. When you need food, you in the winter you move to lower elevation. So. It was it was kind of rewarding to see that for those of us who were like I think they're gonna end up down there. So we you finally got the validation. We the got the validation because we could see the color data and we saw the animals there. It was really interesting to look at the color data because they were between hardware and left hand fork, and then all of a sudden they crossed the canyon and then bam, it was just. Straight they're so there. fast the way they move. It was amazing how quickly they went. So we started feeding, and they, as they were, I think, drifting around looking for food. Then some of them, were like, oh, they're feeding again, and they they and came they back. So then, this winter, right? We we do our post winter assessments. The deer are struggling. Yeah, Snow is deep. I think Rich County is ninety five percent mortality. Is that what they're hundred percent mortality for the collars? And yeah. Cache is not too far behind. Yeah. Cache in Ca- this area has brutal winters, just for yeah. all wildlife in general. Yeah. So, <clears throat> you know, we've we decided to start feeding deer, and I asked the I asked the biologists because we're coming up on our cessation up here, and I said if we stop feeding, <laughs> they're just going to go right down on those feed rows and push the deer off. Yeah. Because elk will displace deer. They'll push them out. In the wintertime. In yeah. the wintertime. Yeah. You know, typically during the summer, they utilize different food sources, so they use, utilize different areas. Grazers and browsers. Yeah. And uh, so there's plenty of summer range for them to spread out and not be in each other's way. But winter, limitation on resources and mobility. So they overlap, and they will push them out. And so um, a couple of days later, they're like, yeah, we better keep feeding elk up at hardware. I said, okay, so we got to get some more hay. And uh, so I said, well, how long? And they said, well, let's go to mid-March. And I'm, okay, we'll buy 100 tons. And then I'm, it was coming up, and I'm like, uh, 
Uh, we, we we still got 30 inches of snow. Yeah, on the like I still, it rained and I and lost two feet, but I still got three yeah, feet. But, but then it crusts over. Uh, yeah, that like crust. I can walk on I weigh 300 pounds and I can walk <laughs> That on crust it. is brutal for yeah. those animals. So, and they can't paw through it. They can't get, and then on top of the, the hardness, the depth, they can't get to the, and nothing is green. Even if it melted off, there's nothing green for them to eat no. right now. And so like, if you think of wildlife, winter is just a long period of starvation. So the question is, am I prepared enough that I can starve long enough that I can outlast winter until the green stuff starts coming back? So your fawns are affected first yeah, for meal, for meal deer, your calves for elk. Yep. And then the, the old ones. And then the old ones that because they've they have uh, poor teeth they they can't eat the best foods that they used to eat they don't pack on the fat in preparation for winter like they used to because they just uh, I mean yeah. even here we've we've lost some calves and cows even though we're feeding them yeah we've still lost yeah. them yeah yeah I've we've I've gone with the biologist you know. as we've taken a couple of the so <clears throat> even even these guys aren't I mean we've lost more here. This winter than we do typically. You know, we'll lose some that are sick or old or, or whatever, but usually you can count it on one hand. It's yeah, it was interesting. Um, your feedlot is right next to the river, and yet one of the, the cows that was taken down died of dehydration. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just basically from being so weak it was unable to get up. And Yeah. But they just they just are worn down this winter. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. And the fact that we're still getting the amount of snow. So we got snow all this week, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then some next week, and too. And then Wednesday, and it's it just keeps coming. Yeah, and it's the end of March. <laughs> yeah, we we never, it never seems to me that we got, like we're, I was talking to Sam, the biologist, and he was talking about getting ready for sharp tail mm-hmm. let counts. And I was like, well. Last time I did that, I was over the program, and we started the first week of April. <laughs> Do you think, are they going to be lecking on top of the snow? And he said, that's a possibility. The the counting window for sage grouse started on the 20th. Yeah. And I still have 20th of March. Yeah, like a, four days ago. <laughs> Can you get, even get to his I don't know. Year? Well, I can't get down Ant Flat to that one. Yeah. that And they dance in the middle of the road there. Plus, there's one on top of the plateau here above the visitor center, and there's one back around Rattlesnake. I need to go back there and see if I can even see if there's tracks or whatever out on the snow if they're even doing it. But, yeah, I, I think two of the three that I go to, I might be able to get to that one if I borrowed uh, the tracked. But you don't really have any side. open faces. No, I don't. Yeah, everything's covered in snow. Everything's covered in snow. That's crazy. Yeah, you'll see. Because uh, Adam Brewerton was like, well, he's like, it starts on the 20th if we can even do anything. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, well, I was talking to him because he was asking me to go out past Bear Lake for a couple of spots. And uh, I was like, it's just covered in snow. When 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 do you want me to go? And he goes, ah, we'll have to take a look and see. Adam. It's just uh, it's just it's hard so to it's just hard to identify. Yeah. Right now, this year's has been so different from everything else. Yeah, this That's is crazy. And I was I was watching the news the other night. They were stacking up years based on their record of snowfall, and like it was like eighty three, eighty two, and eighty four. Like eighty three had that was when the, everything flooded or whatever. Oh, okay. And they had like twenty six inches above normal, and like then eighty. 82 and 84 was like 25.7 
2023. This and this was a couple of days ago. It was 25.7. Yeah, and this is uh, the moisture content within the snow, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, like 25 inches of water. Water in the snow. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot. And and so we're knocking on that. And then it will depend on how quickly it melts. It melts because like 2017, when I was doing stuff uh, for Menden, working on some wildlife issues, turkeys and stuff there, they had just massive flooding. Yeah, because of. Because we would we uh, went we trapped turkeys through mid March, mm-hmm. and then we had to stop. But in, even in mid March, with all that snow we got in seventeen, it wasn't even close to what it is here. Yeah, and there was just massive flooding. See, and and that's what I've been the the melting that we have had. The river still hasn't really come up. Yeah, I was looking at it well, last. Still, what twenty? What what are you getting down to? Like fifteen at night? Twenty? Uh, oh yeah, and so but, you know from about three p.m. to Eight o'clock, I can tell because like Curtis Creek will come up, it's running faster, oh. and I'll have water running down the parking lots from the stuff melting. But you know, looking at the USGS data, let's see if I can grab it right now. And uh, yeah, discharge CFS, it is seventy-seven point eight. The high, the high was back in like on March 18th, and that was around 80 something, you know. So then, if you look at, um, <laughs> it's it's gonna be it'll the, be so interesting. Yeah. See the high, 2017, 646. Yeah. For today. Yeah. It was it was running pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The mean was like 117. So yeah. we're we're way down. We're not as the low was. 29 so yeah. we're not that low no but. but wait till it hasn't even started I technically yeah. i'd say we're still in winter I, I think we are up here anyway that's crazy so i hope it doesn't all come off at once no because we'll have tons of problems everywhere everywhere it'll be interesting yeah okay switching gears because we've talked about enough depressing winter <laughs> can you talk about like the way your plans come together because you talked about you've got elk that you're worried about. You've got mule deer that you're focused on. You got sage grouse. Can you talk about like the different plans and the way habitat biologist works in trying to put all of that together to make this WMA better? Gotcha. So you know the different um, wildlife managers, they sit down and they they develop. Uh, you know, they'll develop like a elk management plan or a deer management plan. And that, you know, will address, it may address habitat issues that uh, they identify might be some problems or it'll talk about, you know, overall objectives regarding those animals. Sage grouse would be different because they're like a, a listed species or not the yeah, other, I think they're considered threatened. And so, you know, our sensitive species guys are involved with with that um whereas habitat managers you know we're going to sit down we're going to look at we'll take hardware for example um we develop by law we're required to develop a habitat management plan for the property this is what i find interesting a lot of people don't know that like your job is required by law to do certain things most people are just like i don't know what he does (coughs) he he just drives around a nice truck that's what i was always told (laughs) you just drive around a nice truck no my truck was beat up but (laughs) but a lot of what you do you have no choice right 
Because it's mandated by law to do certain things based upon whatever area you're managing with the species involved in those. Right. So, you know, hardware, for example, we have our hardware uh, habitat management plan that governs all the decisions we make regarding um, actions we take, um, whether it's uh, dealing with, um, you know, so some of our wildlife object objectives are raising hay to feed elk during the winter um we want to protect riparian areas so those would be your your areas along streams from uh erosion invasive weeds um habitat damage by uh recreation um for hardware camping is a big thing that has started to affect <coughs> habitat and Man, those guys drove me nuts. it's wild they're just, You've been it's here. the it's, Wild West. It's crazy. Memorial weekend. Horrible. People come in, park wherever they want. Sir, you're not supposed to park there. And then they would just drive off in the middle of nowhere and just start tearing <laughs> up stuff just to put their camper. Uh-huh. Shooting fences. <laughs> just, yeah. yes. It, it's crazy. So there's, there's uh, you know, that aspect of it. And so when we develop those things, we take into account... Okay, hardware, for example, is a big game winter range, primarily mule deer and elk. So we're going to pull in um, the, we're going to take into consideration the species management plans for those animals. Same with sage grouse. We, we know we have lex. So we want to incorporate the objectives and, and goals outlined regarding that specific species. Um, we want to make sure we're taking that into consideration. So when we put together a habitat management plan, we compile a committee of wildlife managers. Is that is that be, Are you doing this because you want to get together with a bunch of friends? Or uh, committees, if I understand, are mandated yes. by law. Yeah, and it's part of the um, overall uh, public input process. Yeah, you're required to do these committees, whether it's for this management plan or for cougars, you right. have to have a committee. Exactly. And so, like the committee we put together, um, we had wildlife managers on it. We had habitat managers on it. We had um, elected representatives from the county, Hiram City, state legislature. We had um, a, member that a couple members that represented different sportsman's groups like Mule Deer Foundation. Um, we had uh, some some of them, sometimes we'll have people that represent the public at large that aren't necessarily hunters or yeah, anglers. Yeah, those non-consumptive. Yeah, yeah. They, they enjoy wildlife. And wildlife are the state's, the people's animals um, that the state manages on their behalf. And so they do have a right to have input on yeah. those committees. So then we talk about, you know, some of the... We'll, we'll meet together as a group and we'll talk about some of the things that are facing the management struggles that we're facing, some of the issues we have, and discuss how to approach those and what, how best we can do that. And it can, I think when we wrote the hardware one, it took like 18 months. Part of that was because the one that we were, we, we basically scrapped the previous one because it just, uh, they they wanted to standardize the format, and yeah. so we so you had to start all, we kind of <laughs> had to start over. over, and we had to get the right information all together, and we wanted to do it so that say because they're supposed to be reviewed about every five to ten years, so that when we review it, say 
and it's up for review actually now, um, that we can put together a committee and go through those goals and objectives, and we can refresh like 10 pages of a 100-page document. And, and all we may have to update is bring in updated information from the elk management plan and from the deer management plan. We don't have to rewrite no, Everything. but if you had, like, fires on your property, that would also yes. change some of your stuff. Right. So. Yeah, and so then we can we can talk about all those things. And then once um, the committee has uh, weighed in and, and we've kind of figured out what we're going to do and we've, we've written it and they've reviewed it and then it gets presented to the regional leadership so that our regional leadership can comment on it because maybe there's procedural things or um, regional things that we didn't take into consideration that we missed there's you know because there's a lot of stuff there's a lot of laws there's a lot of there's stuff there's a lot and so then once they're all good with that then we go to the habitat council which that's comprised of dwr leadership and people that represent big game upland game waterfowl fisheries uh the general public and we present it to them, and they get their input. Give comment. Yeah, they give their input. We present it to. We're not required by law to present it to the local county, but we typically offer to, and a lot of them like to hear it because yeah. it's happening in their county, and they want to know what's going on. Um, so, like we presented it to the Cache County Council. We we are required by law to present. I cannot remember what it's called, but it basically we give it to. It's one of the state offices, and then it goes out to all agencies and partners so they can compliment, comment on it. So Whether Forest Service something's going to impact yeah. them, Forest Service, if right. there's, if there's a, yeah. a fire. So Forest Service can see it and say, oh, we have concerns. We have concern about this. Or Forest Fire and State Lands can say, hey, um, have you thought about addressing this? Or water rights, whatever. And then once that's all done and comments taken into consideration then we present it to the rack and the rack is our uh regional advisory council for the re for the uh region that the wma is in so for hardware it's the northern region and there again the the rack committee is comprised of people that represent different sportsmen's groups public at large um those are my favorite meetings you know the the <laughs> regional supervisor for the division is on that council as a uh note taker and basically subject matter expert to answer questions that they yeah may have. they uh largely they have vote. no say yeah they, and and it, they can't i mean they could probably share their opinion but largely Right, they, they may they ask him, well, what do you think about this? Or, yeah. or they may... Or Did you have concerns? The, the committee may be talking about, well, we would like to see this, and they can say, well, um, the board has directed us to... We have this policy that we have to follow. Yeah. You know, or whatever. Oh, okay. So th they're there for that reason, to just kind of answer questions and make sure, like, help them understand what the division is doing or... Or why we do things a yeah, certain way, making sure that uh, the public is has their <laughs> voice being heard. Yeah, and then and that's and that's the meeting where like just general member of the public, they can they can read that management plan, they can come to the meeting and submit a comment on it or ask a question, and and 
you know, me as the WMA manager, I was the presenter for that. So I was there and they can ask questions. They can ask questions and I answer or questions. Concerns. Yep. And so, yeah, it was uh it was a interesting experience. <laughs> I it was uh yeah. <laughs> that I was there. It was the first time I'd ever been to something like that and and uh uh the current wildlife manager at the time and habitat manager Scott and Randy were there and I was like, I've never done this. And they're like, oh, it's, it's easy peasy. It's like, <laughs> It'll be whatever. fine. You're fine. And in fact, we're sitting there and poor uh, Darren was doing the cougar management one. <laughs> oh, you and see, that was you, like, you had to present at the same time it was like as the cougar? 45 minutes. And for people who've never been to Iraq, oh, the cougar is literally the longest one. It's like divisive, man. It's very, it's, <laughs> it, there's a lot of contention. Like nobody's happy. No. there's. I, I don't know that you could do that and make anybody happy no it's i mean they just put into a law hb 469 which is causing controversy we're not going to talk about that but like the the fact that that was your first time to present so (laughs) he's up there because yeah i mean you have a broad spectrum of of people that are concerned about mountain lions you got the the lion hunters and the houndsmen and you got the people on the other opposite end of that spectrum which are don't harm the kitties and and so it's it's divisive. oh it's way spread and they are completely different perspectives and yeah. completely different viewpoints and completely different goals and and it's a public animal and it has to be managed for right both sides so yeah so i'm there and yeah he was it was a hot seat for him yeah and the randy and scott said uh they're like well Darren's taking the heat for you. He's gonna, he's gonna wear them all out before you even get up there. And I was like, hey, that's cool. And no, he got them all wound up, and then they stayed for yours. Oh yeah, oh, I it remember. was. It was like, yeah, you were there. Yeah, huh? I was there. It was like it was hot forty-five minutes, and it completely changed. It did all the work that you had done. Yeah, we had to go back and revisit a couple items, and yeah. and then uh, send it back to the rat committee members so they could review it and then they were happy with what the changes yeah. that had been made so but that's the point of the process yeah. Yeah. you know because there's a lot of people there's a lot of people i mean it's a public resource right and they all need a voice and and like we laugh about it now and and sometimes it is frustrating but that's that's why we do it publicly yeah and it's why we have the the public uh commenting and i think that's why it's important too though yeah like you need to know the direction the public wants to go right because i mean i i live in i live in agency land right they're like we have the way we view things and how we use policies and laws right and 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 i have based on what my objectives are what i would like to see happen but yeah ultimately if we need to go another direction, then we can go another direction. Yeah. I we think don't always look at everything the same way. That's the, the biggest thing I learned while working in wildlife is there's two different processes. Yeah. And I think largely the people who are outside of wildlife don't understand how you're required to do things. And to me, it's important to understand that you have policies and laws. That is the reason why you're, you may not like it, but there is a policy or a law that is forcing yeah. somebody to do it. And I have to do this because yeah. of this. Why'd you get rid of that campground? 
well, I have to improve riparian area, and this was too close right. to the water. Well, that's stupid. I want to camp there. I've been camping there since the 60s. <laughs> I'm sorry, but this is the policy. Yeah. And, and, and that's where I think the real disconnect comes in, in, in wildlife and the public. Yeah, so social media camping, comments. for example, you know, hardware has been a lot of camping. Yeah. And our management plan has us reducing camping by 25% over the life of the plan to protect the river, protect riparian habitat, reduce erosion, reduce damage, and, and the incursion of invasive weeds. Yeah. So how do we <laughs> do that? You can't do that without making people angry. No, because you can try and turn them into like day use, but ultimately they want to get rid of day use because they're still impacting. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, people are going to be mad. Right. And since COVID, it's different. Oh, yes. The amount of people since COVID. Like when I was working, uh, doing some stuff out on the pilots or up in Grouse Creek, the amount of people that I saw out there after COVID was five, ten times higher. Mm-hmm. The amount of side-by-sides you have coming through hardware. On a daily Come up basis. here on a Saturday. No, it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, remember I picked up what twenty cans of gar or twenty bags of, uh-huh. of beer cans that yeah. had just blown down the road. Yep. And not only do we have like local <laughs> local folks that come up and they you know they come up and they park their trailer and they go for a ride or they're going to ride into their cabin that they own on some you know private places down the road, but we have these big I call them tour groups. Yeah, absolutely. But that's they all have there's like. 20 matching side-by-sides full of four to six people, and they go everywhere at 60 miles an hour from highway, was it 36 or whatever it is down there? Yeah, in Ogden. In Ogden all the way up to Bear Lake and back. Yeah. And, like, this is a highly connected area. Oh, yes. And and I have a couple pictures of me sitting up here at the top of, uh, up by where the road turns and goes down to Rock Creek, and you can see the, and, and I'm back where I can shoot over the the meadow and toward the gravel pit up here where you or the, yeah. the parking lot, <laughs> and you can just see the dust cloud. <laughs> it just never went above away. the road. It just sits there and hovers because there's so yeah. much. Like news. Thursday through Sunday, yeah. it's just straight dust. Yeah, it's just yeah, just that's constant. it. You know, and so as we were tackling this uh, issue. And going, okay, what are we going to do? You know, the management plan says we got to do this. So we came up with an action plan, ran it through leadership. It jives with the management plan. And so we've started to implement that. And so some of that is, um, you know, we're implementing a camping season at Hardware. We're designating, we're closing a lot of our um, areas that were just dispersed camping. They're either day use or they're... um, no use, and then we've identified some areas where we will permit camping, and so we're gonna, you know, and even that was pretty controversial when it came out. And so we've actually uh, the the group that was passing around a petition, uh, we've met with their designated spokesperson, and we've made some changes which have been positively received, and they're gonna come once we get rid of the snow. They're gonna come help us. With some of our fencing and that's that seems so, to be a big issue. Is a lot when I worked here. A lot of the fencing would get torn down, and then yeah. the ATVs side by sides or camping in general, they would start making their way around those fenced off yeah. areas. 
Yeah. It's tough when people are shooting in the middle of your campground, all yeah. your fences. <laughs> I don't know. It seemed like uh, after every weekend, I'd come up and have to fix another pole mm-hmm. that had gotten ripped down. Or, you know, and, and yeah, and then they start using them for firewood. And, yeah. and there's, you know, uh, I'm the only full-time guy here. <laughs> and then... I know. And then... How many acres? 14,300. <laughs> One full time for 14,000. That's beautiful. And then, you know, so I might have one or two summer help. Yeah. And that's about it. And so that's a lot for three guys to do. Yeah. And then, you know, there's 22, 23 miles of fence. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I believe that. <laughs> <laughs> you just, you just, and her about yeah, the fence. Just doing that, uh, what it was, it, I don't even know, was it half a mile, a mile long? Yeah, that I think it was fence? like a mile. Yeah. yeah. That, that took, we All started, summer. yeah, we started in the, the very end of July and uh-huh. we went until October before we had that section of yeah. drop fence completely fixed. Yeah, it took the whole summer. Yeah. To, there's just a lot of fence because you got to tear it out. Yeah, got to haul it off. Yeah, and then you got to it's rebuild process. it, put in new posts, and yeah, yeah, it, it was terrible. It took a lot of work. Yeah, and we had dedicated hunter help, and then there was, we had a lot. We had a ton of help. Yeah, and it still took a long time. Yeah, so you know, like so, the fencing we're gonna do in Wapiti, we're gonna use drill pipe fence. I think that's because. Yeah, yeah, it's more costly up front, but no, but the tear it, out is so yeah, much it, harder. It reduces your <laughs> our workload. Yeah, you know, we got to find ways to be um, reduce the amount of time. Yeah, it takes to do everything. Plus, it's a it's a huge property. Do you uh, that drill pipe fence? Do you do you think it'll be more friendly for wildlife to be able to pass through? I think so because so pro- some of the problem with wire fencing is it'll wrap around their feet or. Um, if it's net wire, then they, you know, young deer, they can get their heads stuck in it. Um, with the, we can still build a wildlife friendly fence, which is where the top part is only 48 inches at max. And then the lower one gives you enough, I think it's 16 or 18 inches. And then the other two are in between. And so even if we wanted to do say, uh, you, you needed to use net wire, you could you could do the net wire in the area where the sucker rods are, yeah, and and leave that bottom that open bottom for for the, fawns. for the fawns to go through. But at forty eight inches, they can jump it, but it's going to keep your cattle in. Yeah, you know, and you can still put the sucker rod over the net wire, and that's going to keep it from getting demolished by by other things. So, yeah, um, I I I think it. You know, we got this big pipe fence over here along the river, and deer in and out of they crawl right through the because you've got that, that space. Yeah, yeah. So I I think it'll be okay, and and more. It's uh, it's something that will be long lasting. It'll it, once it's in, it'll last forever. It'll look good. You know, it does look good. I mean, well, I mean the drill pipe fence you yeah. already put up. Yeah, it looks great, and it's awesome because I don't have to worry about it. Yeah, uh, how many times do you go out there and one of your poles had been, I mean, they'd rot out or whatever oh, yeah. and they'd fall they'd down. broke and, off and I got a... Horses start pawing at them. Got to like wire a, a thing back in there. <laughs> it look more like twine string I've got, instead of a long fence. <laughs> I have stuff spliced together with hay. Ba- Any farm has got a barrels full of 
hey twine and it's because they it's useful man you can use it for everything <laughs> i had a guy ask me if we stopped building log fences and started building twine fences <laughs> i mean the elk are really hard on things oh, they're they trying are. to get into that area where you feed your horses and they would just rip stuff down oh yeah elk are just they're big animals so like when we when we rebuilt the fence around the stackyard, like that's a beefy fence. Yeah, we used uh, old telephone poles from Hiram City, and so we had to put them in with an excavator because they're like forty feet tall. Yeah, and then we did uh, chain link with the rails on top of it, and they're still pushing. They're still pushing through it. We had to go through and um, use hog rings to tie the two pieces of chain link together because they destroyed a little section trying to get their heads in to get to the hay they're relentless yeah i mean you're, you're you you want to have feed them but they are yeah. like right now i guarantee you go out there and they're just because they were already in the parking lot were they yeah <laughs> um are there specific animals on hardware that you're focused on like is is there something that you've been mandated like this has now become a priority do you have any of those problem animals there? no i don't um our priority is habitat production to support wintering big game so <clears throat> you know as far as deer go that's sagebrush and bitterbrush and for elk that's hay yeah you know they'll they'll get in and they'll eat sedges and stuff along the river and you know, they'll be in here at night before we start feeding. And I can always tell because all of a sudden the, the tall grass in the ditch banks that's left after we cut is gone. Like, I'll, I'll show up here and I'm like, oh, I can see that ditch. I know elk have been here. They've started coming you in. You know, they've started coming in. but um, So you don't have any really of those challenges? No. Um, we've got, you know, sage grouse. But, you know, I the, the concern there would be if we did a treatment where the lek was, um we'd want to do it in a way that we're going to promote sage grouse youth use so you know make sure there's ample edge mosaic um in our the way we do our land treatment and make sure that when we do do turnout for grazing that we're not we're doing it post lecking season which which we do they usually done lecking by the end of april and turnout is up here is usually um like right before Memorial Day. So you've got some time. Yeah. Uh, last thing, can you talk about uh, the research that goes on here? Because there's gobs of research. Yeah, so I mean, division-wise research, we have our uh, <clears throat> elk trapping that we do. There's the collaring of mule deer. Um, and that has been fun to watch over the years. It's gone from just collaring some mule deer to there was a few deer years where we were um, – Excuse me. No, you're fine. I can, <laughs> I can, I can, I can ah! have you. <laughs> there was a few years where we were um, putting uh, vaginal implanted transponders yeah, the in the For does. Sandies. Yeah, and then when they would give birth to the fawns, uh, Sydney and her BYU student crew would run around and find the neonates that couldn't run yet and weigh them and measure them and then slap a collar on them yeah. to talk to mama and then we could monitor fawn mortality and and stuff like that so that was going on we've had us usu up here doing several uh different things we had uh what's his name joe flower mm -hmm. uh was doing um electric 
electrified concrete. Yes, I got to help on that. That and was a horrible project. <laughs> I, I was an undergrad, and I got to run the pick. Oh, is that, you were digging the hole, huh? I had to help dig the hole. It was horrible. <laughs> uh, this place should be called Boulders instead of hardware because that sucked. Uh, but in between the, the cattle guards, he, yeah. had to, he had to have that gap. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, uh, no, it was really cool once they got it set up because the idea was um, is maybe a potential use to deter wildlife crossings on roads where um, – they were more prone to being hit. And so if you could deter them with... You identify um, a drainage or something. Yeah, or, or like a blind corner. And so you put this electrified concrete in that's going to keep them from, uh, you know... Um, crossing. There. Crossing right there. They're going to go down somewhere else and cross. And I don't know what the application, practical world application would be. But I do know for the couple of uh, winters he was doing it, it, he learned a lot. He He's like, I never built fence before. So we showed him how to <laughs> build fence because he had to fence out those things. And Basically, what they'd do is they'd, they'd put feed in. He kept his concrete covered. And, and elk are amazing. They'll figure out how to walk across cattle guards. and Oh, yeah. They'll, like, step on the They don't things. care. They, they no, figure it out. They're smart. They'll watch their idiot brother break his leg, and then they're <laughs> like, okay. Now I know what not to do. Don't step there. And so then they would feed inside the thing, and the elk could figure out how to get in there. And then on the control ones, they just had a cattle guard, which is what is used a lot. And then on the test ones, they had the cattle guard, but then they had this electrified concrete. And uh, he had to play with the power levels and, had to crank it up pretty high because otherwise they'd walk right across it. And they wouldn't fill a thing. Yeah, but when he got it right, a couple of it, and then they had a uh, trail cam in the enclosure to take pictures. And you could see they'd come up and back away. Like they could sense that electrical field. They didn't even need to step on it. They could, there's one where this, uh, he's like three or four point raghorn. And he, the one picture, he's in there on it. And then the next one, he's shying away like, Oh, like I don't like this. Too close. But uh, Joe would have to go out because if if it got snow on it, um, it would like uh, short out the the thing or ground it out, and so then it didn't work. And and he could always tell because he'd come up and there'd be tracks going in and out, and the hay would be gone. Yeah, so he'd get it shoveled off, and then it would work fine. So you know, in a Real world uh, application, it, that could be hard, especially on a road surface where you get salt and sand and you got oil from the vehicles. Yeah. And grounding, so, the you grounding know, issue. I don't know, but it's, 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 it's interesting. interesting. Yeah. And, and it was effective. And at the, at the um, voltages he had it cranked, oh, it killed all the mice and squirrels and everything. Because it was so Because it was high for yeah. them to fill it. It was too much for them. But for the elk, it would... It, you know, like a horse or a cow hitting a yeah. electric a hot line, and oh, oh, yeah. I'm not going there. I'm not going there. Uh, my my dog found out real <laughs> quick. He was out. We were out checking him. I was helping Joe check something, and and uh, my dog trigger. Joe jumped over the concrete, and and uh, my dog's over there sniffing, and he goes running in there and stepped on it, and he, he figured out. Right oh yeah, there. he ran into the. Exclosure and then he's in enclosure and then he's he wouldn't come out and we were laughing and then all of a sudden he ran and jumped and he cleared the cattle guard and the <laughs> concrete and then he came and sat on the uh, 
good. on the tractor next to me. Uh, I'm fine. I don't yeah, know. <laughs> and he probably thought I shocked him yeah. because he had his e collar on, <laughs> and usually, you know, if he won't listen, I'll hey. Yeah. Pay attention to me. Yeah. And so I'm sure he thought I was the one that zapped him, but <laughs> trying to figure out how I zapped his feet instead of his yeah. instead of his neck. <laughs> trying to figure all yeah. that out. That's crazy. So, you know, we we've had that. We've had um a lot of people questions we got over the years was what they thought were solar panels back behind the, the I always thought that too. Elk trap. And those were uh USU was doing a study related to Climate change. So what they were actually doing is they were ca- uh, covers that sheltered the ground beneath from being rained or snowed on. They collected the rain and snow precipitation and then irrigated those plots underneath according to various scenarios p- proposed by climate change. Yeah, Temperature or, you know, okay, the, if climate change means less snow but more... Um, summer rain how does the plants respond in rangeland scenarios if it means this how do they respond in rangeland scenarios and and according to oh god i can't remember the kid's name that was running it but um they had our site was like rangeland they had one on usu's forest site up logan canyon and they had on the daniels forest yeah, yeah. and then they had a isn't there one out in Clarkston? They had one or two out in the valley for agriculture. Yeah. And so, because they're like, you know, a lot has been done regarding temperature. But what does that mean in the change of moisture. precipitation, moisture? How's the plant life going to respond? So that they were doing that. And like right now we have um, Dr. Adler's doing one related to um, cheatgrass. <laughs> so, so you know, and a lot of, a lot of that they'll give us... Uh, access to their research and that helps us it may help us with management decisions or it just helps us understand better what's going on on yeah how on the property interconnects yeah. do you uh propose any studies or are there things that you're um i'm busy enough i haven't really um but yeah, yeah i mean one person <laughs> fourteen thousand acres all the other one we did which was fun was when we were doing uh they wanted to try to see if they could use drones to count sage grouse uh, Yes, I've read about this because I want to do it. It was <laughs> so that it seemed to me, and and I'll let you talk more about it. But it seemed to me that the the uh, software wasn't as good, or it's not been fine tuned enough to be able to identify. Yeah, I think there's. Clearly. I think that was kind of the the um, result was like there's potential for it, but we've got to improve the software and the IR capabilities and stuff. Because so awesome. <laughs> if you're too low, they fly off. Well, they either run off the leck and hide, or yeah, they think like you're like an eagle or something. And you definitely had to do it like before the sun was up. They'd freak out if they could like they'd hear it and they'd hunker down and they wouldn't move, but they couldn't see it. And so then it was like I don't know what that is. And they didn't dare move, so they wouldn't could hear move. That. <laughs> right. Yeah. But. If if so, if you were too late, then they would think it was like a, a bird of prey or something, and they'd go hide in the sagebrush. And then, so I would go out and count, like physically count, and those guys would be up there a little early. And they had they had taken um, what did we have? We had like 
I think they changed it. I think it started out with like aluminum foil covered card pieces of cardboard because they needed something to reflect. Um, that would be colder than the ground. Yeah, and and so that the so they could get their so the, thermal. Yeah, that and then they they could tell. Yeah, so the thermal could uh, compare and then calibrate. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, they had to be able to tell what was ground and what was. Yeah. Because and they came out in the day and they flew it to map out the GPS thing, and then they had to mark where they used the thermal to verify that it was on the right point. Like even though it had its, it's got its own GPS thing. Yeah. It has to be able to see the ground. Yeah. For it to work, yeah. and so they had to have that so it could so make that, sure it was on its right point, knew where to stop. And then, yeah. That's so interesting. So it was really funny, though, because it would take off, and then they would we'd be watching on the monitor, and it would go out and fly. and would be You could see the grouse out there doing their thing, and then they'd <laughs> like oh, freeze. Oh, I guess this is so. And then, like, so then they're like, okay, this is when we were testing it. So then they'd go higher, and then they'd start dancing. Okay, that's so the right, they, they got right altitude. They got they kind of got it tuned in, but it, what was so funny is they'd be flying, and, and then all of a sudden you'd see this white streak, like, <laughs> we're like, what the heck was that? There's a rabbit, like one of those big jackrabbits. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You, and so you'd you'd be doing it, and you'd see these like white streaks just zipping, zipping across the thing, and it was sometimes they'd zip right through the grouse, and the grouse would all freak, freak out. out. And it was like, well, sometimes they'd come back, sometimes they wouldn't. They're like, yeah, we're done, we're done. <laughs> the rabbits ruined it for us. <laughs> but it was just so funny, and I, it was amazing how many. Uh, I. Usually I see like one or two. Yeah. So, the jacks. Yeah, the big the big jacks. Now, this year, I came up. I was, Are we having an explosion of jacks up here? Holy mackerel. I was doing something late. I think I was feeding horses. You know how it gets dark early. Yeah. So it was dark. It was only like 6 o'clock. But I was going out to feed horses. And I come around the end of the barn. And it was kind of blowing, so it was hard to see. But it looked like the whole ground was like moving. Like, you know, like when the avalanche goes down the hill yeah. and then it stops and then everything slowly spreads out and slows down. Yeah. That's what it looked like. And I was like, what, what the that? heck? I counted like 25 Jack jackrabbits. Rabbit. That's crazy. They were all right there by the barn. And when I came around the end, it was like, they all just it looked off. like the field was moving. <laughs> I saw that over by Round Valley. I was doing a late night count, and I thought they were deer because I kept seeing eyes. Uh huh. And they all started running at me. <laughs> Finally, I got my spotlight out, and I realized it was all jacks, and they were out in the middle of this field. And we it's talked to scary. Yeah, Jim uh, approached the owner, and he's like, "Do you think your problem is not deer, but maybe the jackrabbits?" And he goes, "Look how small they are." <laughs> yep, there was like a hundred. <laughs> like there was literally so many. You know what they eat? Hey, yeah, that's all they eat. <laughs> And he's like, no, they're fine. It's fine. <laughs> you go in my, my stackyard, there is rabbit crap everywhere. everywhere. Yeah, big, because they're big rabbits. Yeah. yeah. And they eat a lot. Uh-huh. <laughs> Dude, thanks for doing this podcast. Hey, you it's, bet. It's been a lot of fun. Hopefully gonna, I didn't ooh. put my foot in my mouth and get in trouble. No, no, no. <laughs> this has been a lot of fun. We're going to have to do it again, because there's so much that that we can break down at hardware. 
Yeah. Like we talked about the main things, but there's, there's a lot more to it than like, there's a, a bunch of lop and scatter projects or things mm-hmm. that areas that you are targeting that you're trying to focus on. Yeah. And I, it, it'd be fun to come back and visit and talk about those. Reasons, yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah. Cause I mean, one of the big ones that we're going to do this year is we didn't realize this till we were doing a uh, stream assessment and the guy running the workshop, we did it on uh, rock Creek up here. And he was like, you got the wrong type of algae in the wrong quantity for this river, this type of creek. And we're like, okay, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> and he's like, you have a nutrient load being like introduced to the the river somewhere. And me and Darren look at each other and we're like, it's that campground right there. People are dumping? That and it's where we tie up horses. Horses. You know, right there at Pole Hollow? Yeah. So that was kind of the impetus behind we need to do something. Now, where Rock Creek comes down, Baxter, we already fenced that off and moved everything off the river. And that area is rehabilitated nicely. So we're going to do... Who knew that was a thing? Algae. Yeah. See, this is why I like wildlife, though, because you you learn so many different things and how things are interconnected. Yeah. Like in your wildest dreams, would you ever thought that algae no. would be an indicator for something? No. I mean, you when know, you were worked in fisheries, yeah, you obviously didn't like yeah. algae blooms, but... Yeah, but just because they took oxygen and killed your fish. Yeah, but for a WMA, yeah, you're like, what? You know, and and I've, you know, I'm not an algae guy, so I thought, well, most algaes are all the same. Yeah. Apparently, Apparently for this type of creek, that's the wrong kind of algae, and then we have way too much of it. And it was evidence of, and it, because there's the right nutrient com- component for it to be there, to grow. See, this is why I got to come back. We're going to have to do it again. (laughs) Thanks, Brad. You bet.